conscious for research uh, for my crime series. Also set on fire. Uh, oh, uh, set on fire for research. Um, not at the same time, though. I wasn't checked out and set on fire at the same moment. That would have been very dangerous indeed. Um, I've also yeah. spent time, obviously, with a lot of police officers and uh, as well as the FBI agents. So I've been to Quantico, the famous FBI academy there. Um, what else? There's so many things. I've been to morgues. I've seen autopsies. Um, yeah, I've been to crime scenes, been out on the beat, um, all of those things. And that just helps to give me more layers of knowledge and understanding about the characters I write about in my fiction. Um, and I think it gives me a little bit more perspective in my nonfiction as well. Uh, I've done loops over the Sydney Opera House with the um, Roulettes, which is a group of um, fighter pilots. And let's see, I, I think I've pulled 4.5 Gs. Hey there, everyone. It's Joanna. I wanted to give this little bit of uh, clarification here. You have a great podcast coming up. It's just because my guest and I had a really cool and long conversation. My recording equipment near the end started to um, kind of like record things. Um, so it sounds like my guest and I are talking over each other. I have tried my very best with the editing, but I didn't want to take out too much. I so did not want to take out too much because it is a really fun, intuitive interview. So it may sound like at one point my guest is talking over my voice. That was not the case at all. It had to do with the technology. And I am looking for new software for, to record my podcasts. So sit back, enjoy, get a hot chocolate, a coffee, a glass of wine. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. Fingers crossed. He'll, he'll, he'll not try to steal our show today. I have got everything pushed up against the curtains so he can't, with his little nose, peek outside. <laughs> Before we get started, I have to give a shout out again to Pip Wallace. Uh, her help with researching today's author has been invaluable. Thank you, Pip. Um, Again, you got to let me know, a bottle of red or a bottle of white, okay? So my name is Joanna. Today's guest is a Canadian and Australian author. She has dual citizenship. Her 13 books have been published in 19 countries and 13 languages. She has been in this publishing business for 21 years. She is also a UNICEF National Ambassador, a 2015 Edna Ryan award-winning author for her significant contributions to the feminist debate and speaking out for women and children and inspiring others to challenge the status quo. 
She is on the 2018 Global Diversity List, which includes such people as Bernie Sanders, Queen Noor of Jordan, and Mala Yushafasai. I have been practicing that last name, Yushafasai. I want to make sure I get it correctly. This author is working towards her PhD, as well as she has written fiction and nonfiction novels, and she also likes sewing. Tara Moss, welcome to the JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Joanna. Thank you. Before we get into our, our questions here, how are you doing? How's your family doing with COVID? Well, we're, um, fingers crossed, um, we're doing well at the moment. Um, we're in a pretty lockdown life because I'm a higher risk person with some of the health issues I have. So we are fairly isolated. Of course, being an author, isolation is a bit of a norm. So this is just kind of uh, taking it to the next level, I suppose, Um and we've had a pretty strange year. We've been in three different cities, um, uh, not by choice, but that's just sort of the way things have uh, happened to work for us through this pandemic, originally in Vancouver. And then I got stuck in Australia when I was over there um, actually doing a crime investigation um, for podcasts that will be coming out. Um, and I got stuck over there and the borders closed before I was able to return because everything happened so quickly, of course, when the pandemic hit. Um, but now I'm back in beautiful Canada in my hometown and we have a house here. So it's been a lot of disruptions and change, but we're, we're knock on wood, um, uh, doing okay at the moment and we've got each other and, uh, yeah, no complaints. We're feeling very grateful. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Good. Such an interesting time for for everyone, really, and for the world. Um, in fact, I wrote a piece in Ms. Magazine re recently about um, World War II heroines, in part because I'm obsessed with the topic, but also because I feel that what we're going through internationally at the moment kind of resonates with previous international events. It's it's very different than a uh, you know a world war. It's it's a very different scenario, but it might be the last time. Several countries, particularly in the West, will have experienced things like, you know, lockdowns and rationing and being unable to access things or, you know, having to pull together, I guess, as a nation. So, um, yeah, I feel like there's a bit of um, a connection really to the period that I write about. It's interesting you should say that because I've had conversations with my spouse and I've said to him, this is like a war. Mm. We just we can't see. Mm. We can't see. I don't want to say the enemy, but we can't see this germ. Yeah. Look at the numbers mm. worldwide, right? Yeah. And um, I just wish people would take it. Some um, some people, some individuals mm. would take it a little more seriously. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Um, especially as someone who's higher risk, and you know, I'm a, a youngish person still. I like to think of myself that way. Anyway. Um, it's really yeah. frustrating to hear um, other people in my age group or younger and uh, not taking it seriously because it's like, well, you know, this is life and death for a lot of us, right? And and you actually don't know if it's life and death for you until it happens to you either. Uh, and a, lo exactly. a lot of people are experiencing long COVID, um, so a series of health 
conditions that follow on from having had the virus as well, even though, even though they've recovered um, from the, the main bout of COVID. So, you know, there's a lot that we don't know and health is extremely important and um, central to our lives and experiences of the world. So, yeah, I find it pretty amazing that anyone wouldn't take that seriously, but it, it shows me how sheltered some people have been, that they just haven't had health scares or had people near them with health problems because they just don't seem to register what a, a massive thing it is. Yeah, mm. yeah. I really want to get get into your novel in true fashion as your heroine. <laughs> P.I. Billy Walker. Let's roll up our sleeves and let's do this. Hey, sounds fantastic. I'll roll up my, okay. I'll roll up my 1940s shirt dress and get into it. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> I've been reading The War Widow. I have a hundred pages left. Oh, exciting. And yeah. It's the first in a new series. And I understand um, that it was originally titled Dead man switch. Yes, uh, just I'm. I'm you. Uh, sorry, uh, you undoubtedly would um, would register what that would be from from the opening uh, chapter, the dead man switch yeah. mentioned, uh, which of course is the name of a mechanism on a number of different devices, but particularly lifts or elevators uh, used to have a dead, wow. dead man switch. So if you took your hand off the if the op the lift operator, there used to be operators for these. You, they weren't manual at the time. If you took your hand off of the uh, controls, it would automatically stop. And that was called a dead man's switch. So you didn't actually need to, the lift operator to be dead in order for that to kick in. They would just have to have let go of it. And it was so that um, the elevator wouldn't, you know, plunge to the ground or, or otherwise if it wasn't being operated yeah. properly. Yeah. So, We've mentioned that the novel is set during the 1940s in Australia. And I was wondering if you could provide our listeners with a brief summary of what The War Widow is about. Yeah, thank you. So, yes, Dead Man Switch is called The War Widow Worldwide now, um, in the English language at least. But it was previously called Dead Man Switch. It's set in Sydney in 1946. And it introduces us to this wonderful character of Billy Walker. She's a character I've really fallen in love with as the as the creator, as the author. Um, she, oh, how do I describe her? Um, I guess I'll go with the description that was in one of the trade publications that said she was a staunchly feminist, champagne-swilling, fast-talking, fast-driving Nazi hunter. <laughs> um <laughs> And that is just a, a wonderfully apt description of her. She's stylish. She looks a little bit like Ava Gardner, if you could imagine her as, as a kind of Philip Marlowe type. And she really, yeah, she does get her hands dirty. She does roll up her sleeves and get in there. Uh, but she's also a very stylish woman, and she uses that knowledge she has of uh, fashion and appearance, which is something she learned from her mother. Um, she yeah. uses that to really blend into different environments, which is a very important element of being um, a private inquiry agent or private investigator. You need to be able to slide into the, the rooms where the high end of town are meeting. And you also need to be able to hang out at the DOS houses, as they called them at the time. So, you know, dive bars and, and the dodgier places 
Um, you need to be able to fit in and and observe and follow people um, without being seen. And that requires this uh, almost kind of Houdini-like ability to kind of slip out of places and also to blend in. And um, Billy's very, very good at that. And and she's a she's a character who's I guess she brings together several qualities that I admire that are traditionally thought of, or certainly at the time would have been thought of as masculine qualities or feminine qualities. She has both, and she blends them together beautifully. And and she's a very, yeah, very empowered, very interesting character, a woman of action that I really enjoy writing. She's really cool. Yeah, she's really cool. Um, and. As I'm reading this and uh, as reading the novel, as I'm writing my questions, I had a laugh because on Friday night, I just, I looked at my spouse and uh, I said to him, so what do you think equality was like in the 1940s? <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, equality for who? <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that is a really good point. It's, it's curious, actually, because in the 1940s, there was a, a huge step forward for gender equality. It was, well, okay, equality shouldn't even be used as a word. It was a huge step forward yeah. for women's participation in that they were finally given the green light to enter several workforces, which had previously been exclusively male. And that was out of necessity because of the war effort. Um, so it wasn't that suddenly society became a bit more progressive. It was just that they needed women <laughs> to do some of this work because all the men were overseas. But what it did allow right. is it allowed a lot of women to uh, experience the independence of a wage for the first time. It allowed them to be um, more accepted in various um, fields. Uh, interestingly, it wasn't really uniform across the board. Um, like, for, for example, the Soviets... Um, they had several incredible women fighter pilots who were, you know, extraordinary fighters and, and involved in combat. In other um, militaries, they wouldn't allow women to be involved in combat. Uh, there's a wonderful combat photographer or photojournalist named Lee Miller. Um, she got arrested by the the US army at one stage because she was a um she was a photojournalist as i mentioned and she had the ability to go and and take photographs for them but she wasn't allowed to cover combat because she was a woman they literally banned oh, wow. her from that so she found herself uh in you know covering a a conflict which arose and she was the only like photographer there, she took these very important photographs of a conflict and got arrested afterwards by the U.S. Army for breaking the rules, uh, covering a conflict. I mean, she was the only person there. What is she going to do? Say, oh, I better not photograph this thing that's happening in front of me. I mean, it's quite ridiculous. So um, some of the scenarios women found themselves in were quite quite wild and by today's standards you just think how incredibly backward that they had to work against these various obstacles um, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write about this period because there's so much tension um, in the the sort of social and political and cultural roles of women they're being encouraged to get involved in the workforce they're out there a lot of these women had been knocking on doors for you know decades and finally were being given a green light. The door was opening for them and they said, sure, come on in and 
you know, uh, work in these factories, work in these uh, newsrooms, but they still had these strange rules they'd come up against. And it was very uneven how they were received. Uh, Billy Walker is a great example of a woman who was working as a reporter during uh, World War II in Europe. And then she's come back to her hometown of Sydney in Australia um, when her father is ill and passed on. And she finds herself in this situation where her husband is missing, her father has passed on, she's in Sydney, Australia with her mom, who's a wonderful character in this, the Baroness uh, Ella von Hooft. And she thinks, well, what am I going to do with my life? I can't you know, go back to Europe. The war has just ended. I don't know what I should do. And so she decides to reopen her late father's private investigation agency. And she's very, very good at that trade. But she's, again, she's a woman trying to find her way without a man, without um, any of those sort of traditional roles that were still being foisted upon women at that time. And again, her choice to be a private investigator is really met with quite uneven responses. On the one hand, she's very good at the work and a lot of women um, want to come to her because they trust her they, and they would rather have another woman helping them with their various matters. But of course, it is a traditionally male um, occupation, particularly in the 1940s. And the, a lot of people really look down on her for being a woman working at all, let, a, let alone a war widow, which is what she's thought to be, even though her husband hasn't been confirmed dead. Um, and war widows were incredibly uh, frowned upon, if you can believe it. Um, they were considered to be a bit of a threat to the norms and status quo of society because, again, there were women without, um, you know, uh, being attached to men, and that was something that was viewed with suspicion. That's not God. How can that be? Oh, God. I know. I know. <laughs> like the sacrifices that women made during that period is something that we don't hear and read about enough, which is one of the reasons I chose to focus on it. Um, but just think of, you know, losing uh, a husband or even a husband and, and children in some cases to the war and then having, you know, socially speaking, having people look, view you with suspicion. The, the quickest thing you needed to do is go out and try to find another guy and get married straight away because otherwise you were considered a threat. Um, Billy's not going to do that. She's, she's not that personality, but uh, it made things very difficult for women at the time. Well, even there's one line in there where she's in this very posh, um, I don't want like drinking yeah. establishment and the bar, the bartender kind of raises his eyebrows because she orders her own drink. And I'm just like, <laughs> hello. That's right. That's right. You know, it's sort of like, oh, okay. She's ordering her own drink. It would be really standard to look to the male of the, of the group to, give the orders, you know, to sort of say, oh, she'll have this and that. You even do see that occasionally these days. Um, I've been the breadwinner in the family traditionally sort of just for the last 10 years. Um, and it's just the way things have worked out in our family. And the number of times I will give my credit card and then it gets handed back to my husband is <laughs> incredible. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, no, I'll, I'll take that. You need my signature, actually. It's just so automatic to... Um, to look to the male of the couple to make the decisions and to pay the bills. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's kind of strange to see that even happens now in 2020, but you can imagine in 1946, not only are those norms in place really firmly, um, but 
there's been all this kind of tension about what women have been doing. So there's some people that are actually quite angry at the changes that have taken place. Um, <laughs> creates a really interesting setting. And like I said before, it was one of the reasons I really wanted to set a book in this period to, to highlight some of these issues, but also because I think they still do resonate today. And that's what I was just going to ask you. Um, any of the, the treatment that Billy is subject to have you based any of that on your own experiences to an extent yes um she's the third fictional heroine i've created um mac vanderwall was the first she's in my contemporary crime series uh pandora english is the second and she's a um a paranormal in a paranormal series i'm still writing and billy walker is my third heroine they're all like part of an amazing girl gang i would love to join i have to say um, but each yeah. of them, I suppose, yeah. has a bit of myself in there, a little bit of my experiences. But because Billy has this different time period, she's my first historical character. Um, her experiences are different from mine, but I, I guess I feel them. I feel, um, I feel the the carryover from that time today still, and I can. The, yeah. the history and how that has formed our experiences in the modern world. Um, I wrote a nonfiction book called The Fictional Woman about fictions around women and girls and the archetypes uh, that we've found through history and, and how we tell stories about women and girls. <clears throat> and um, one of the things that that involved was a lot of, you know, historical research yet again. And it just seems so clear to me how we had this, sort of starting point or this period of influence in the past where certain rules were set into place. And I feel like we haven't quite recovered from that. We still have a, a kind of hangover from very um, yeah. out, now outdated ideas, uh, but they don't kind of just go away overnight. And I think that that's why we can look back 75 years and go, you know, Oh, wow. You know, at that time, you couldn't get a bank account. You couldn't get, you know, you couldn't do all these things as a, as a woman. You needed a man to sign on them. And then you realize actually in a lot of places that went through to the 80s or the 90s and, you know, it's it, it continued on for so long. And it's just a reminder, I suppose, of where we've come from and how far we have to go. Exactly. Yeah. It's always been a really See, good story. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun and entertaining to play with this stuff, but it's all um, yeah. it's all context and just, I think, makes it richer. Well, you even mentioned how, um, well, it's very true for that mm. time period. Billy can't call herself yeah. a detective. She, she can only call herself, is that a private investigator? Or yes, she can use or investigator she can, or she can use inquiry agent. So she's a private inquiry agent or investigator. What's interesting about that is that was an Australia-wide thing at the time. When I looked into private eyes of that period, there were other women who were working as private eyes. or that She's not um, a total anomaly in that sense, but she is. she would have been rare. Uh, working in that period, but not alone. Uh, but that Australia-wide rule to do with the word detective, it seems like that was the police being um, 
protective of the word detective, that you had to be a public detective, if you were, if you would, a uh, a police detective in order to use that word. Very different from everything we know of, you know, film noir and hardboiled from the same period coming out of the U.S. Because everyone yeah. was, you know, a private detective, a private dick, and so on. Um, but yeah, you could not use that language in Australia. It was reserved for the police. Mentioning the police, is it true that when some female females started joining the police force, they weren't given That's uniforms? That's right. They were. Um, There's several ways in which they weren't considered to be uh, fully members of the police force. And I'm just going to read a very, very quick section here. Uh, because all of this is is factual, um, and it's one of the things I love to do in all my books, but particularly with The War Widow, to just drop in these little gems of historical reality to kind of, you know, open up the discussion and the, I guess the thought process about, you know, where we've come from and how far we've, we've come. Um, so it says here, Billy was on a first name basis with the famous special sergeant first class Lillian Armfield who, by the way, is a real person, who had joined the force in 1915. And through her, she knew well enough the struggle. The female recruits hadn't even uniforms, weren't paid overtime like the boys, nor were they entitled to either superannuation or a pension. They had to sign contracts stating that they wouldn't be compensated for any injuries suffered in the line of duty, couldn't join the police association, and had to resign if they married, one of the reasons Lillian never had. With all that, it was a wonder so many women were keen to sign up, but the applications always far outnumbered the spaces allotted. So that is all factual. Uh, imagine you couldn't join the police association. The superannuation in Australia is like a retirement fund. So they weren't entitled to a retirement fund over time or even any compensation if they were injured in the line of their work. I mean, that's just extraordinary to me. Uh, so they were very much considered uh, second-class citizens still, and as police officers, very much um, second-class or even lower. God. Yeah. Oh. Like in Armfield, okay. uh, she was a very famous detective, as I mentioned, and very much you know one of a kind for her time. She uh, she was the first one allowed to um, carry a sidearm, so she she was going out there in these very dangerous streets at the time in in Sydney. Um, crime was rife in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and um, she had to go out there with without a sidearm or, you know, no uniform, no sidearm. It's it's just extraordinary to think about. Yeah, I've been informed that you are known for your depth yes. of research. What is the most extravagant <laughs> or outlandish task or endeavor that you've partaken in? Oh, gosh, how do I narrow it down? Um, well, a couple of standouts, I suppose, would be um, being choked unconscious for research uh, for my crime series, also set on fire. Uh, oh, uh, set on fire for research. Um, not at the same time, though. I wasn't choked out and set on fire at the same moment. That would have been very dangerous indeed. Um, I've also yeah. spent time, obviously, with a lot of police officers and uh, as well as the FBI agents. So I've been to Quantico, the famous FBI academy there. Um, what else? There's so many things. I've been to morgues. I've seen autopsies. Um, yeah, I've been to crime scenes, been out on the beat, um, all of those things. And that just helps to give me 
more layers of knowledge and understanding about the characters I write about in my fiction. Um, and I think it gives me a little bit more perspective in my nonfiction as well. Uh, I've done loops over the Sydney Opera House with the um, Roulettes, which is a group of um, fighter pilots. And let's see, I, I think I've pulled 4.5 Gs, which was, which was uh, yeah, a pretty extraordinary feeling, I must say. Um, oh, the list goes on. I am up for all kinds of things, indeed. <laughs> I've got my race car driver's license, my wildlife handling license. Yeah. Well, that's cool, because I, I, do, I, I do want to get into that oh, car yeah. Oh, yeah. a little later. And I've got, yeah. um, I've got my private investigator credentials as well. So although I've never practiced as a PI, mm -hmm. I've gone out with private investigators on cases and I've got my PI license, my, um, or sorry, not my license, but my credentials. So to be licensed, you have to pay a fee to be listed and work. So I've done everything but that because I don't okay. intend to actually work. So I've got my uh, Certificate 3, it's called, which is the modern-day um, credentials necessary to work as a private investigator. And interestingly, Billy Walker in 1946 would not have needed that. They didn't have any credentials that were required. <laughs> just, you just weren't allowed okay. to call yourself a detective, okay. but everything else went. <laughs> you know, I'm reading it and I'm thinking – Okay, this was written in 2018, 2019, and I feel like I'm reading a novel that was oh, written in 1940. You. It, it's thank oh, you. Wow. Yeah. And you work in so many um, different, I will say, one particular, and I had no idea, I had no idea until I had read your book about the horrible injustice that mirrored mm. what we did in Canada with your yes. character, Shyla. And can you explain what the Aborigine Welfare Board did for me oh, and thank anyone you. else listening? Look, I feel this opportunity should be given to one of the incredible Aboriginal women uh, in Australia who can explain it so well, but I'll, I'll do my best. And in the book, this is explained to an extent as well, because The War Widow is about many things, but one of the through lines is inequality, as, as you've mentioned, that, that term before, and that goes for inequality across issues of race and culture, as well as disability and gender. So all the different characters experience um, issues of status relating to, you know, where they come from or, you know, what their circumstances are and their lives, their material lives are impacted by that. Shyla is a very good example. She's an Aboriginal woman. She's a Wiradjuri woman. And um, she was taken by the Aboriginal Welfare Board um, from her family. This is part of what's called the stolen generation in Australia. And it went on for many, many decades. Uh, the, the line was that it was for their own good, but these, um, these young Aboriginal kids were taken from their families, which would have been absolutely, would have been and was absolutely traumatizing and devastating for those families and those kids. And for the most part, they were put into domestic service. So the boys were often sent out to um, uh, sheep stations, cattle stations and things like that to work as, as farmhands, if you will. And the girls were trained in domestic service and would um, work often for nothing or next to nothing um, and would be forced basically into slavery yeah, I was just yeah. it was that. like a, yeah. it was a form of slavery, yeah. not to be 
mixed up necessarily with the uh, structures of slavery in America, but there are many parallels as well. Um, and again, yeah. that um, forced, uh, the, the horror of being forced away from your family. They were also uh, indoctrinated into uh, Christian religion, and that often involved getting Christian names. And this is relevant for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that uh, because their names were changed and their names, their cultural names were taken away from them, and they weren't allowed to use their own language, something we see has happened in other countries, including Canada, um, it meant that it was very hard for them to then find their families again. I mean, how do you, how do you find your child oh. once they've been taken away and they've been given another name? They, they're given the name of Mary and sent, yeah. you know, to work somewhere as domestic help for some family and they're you know, they're a child and they have a different name. How do you track that? And of course they were, you know, this was a, a notoriously slippery and difficult system. Um, and a lot of the white people involved in it like to believe that they were doing the right thing and helping out, but really it was a way to get free labor um, and to, um, you know, that, that was very cheap or free labor and it was absolutely devastating to the Aboriginal communities involved. And it went on for an incredibly long period. There was a lot of, um, there was, and still to an extent is a lot of animosity between, um, you know, the police authorities and the Aboriginal communities. Um, and you know, that's, yeah. that is a cultural, uh, issue, a historical issue, a police issue, which continues to go on in a lot of places in Australia. A lot has changed, but a lot is the same. And, um, having Shyla as such a strong and, um, involved character in this book, you know, she's not just sort of a sideline. She's, she is, um, wow. one of Billy Walker's informants in the book but she also ends up really having her own moment. I won't give away how that plays out. But she ends up being the heroine of her own plot line, which I th thought was incredibly important. Yeah, and it was, uh, the book was actually launched in Australia by um, an Indigenous um, lawyer and activist, uh, Larissa Brandt, who is, um, she's an academic as well and just an incredible woman. And she really, uh, she really loved the book and enjoyed that. And I also did have um, a Wiradjuri woman look over the text as well and had other feedback from Aboriginal um, academics in order to get that character right. It's not the full book. She, she is one element of it, but it was an element I wanted to be sensitive to. And I didn't want to be part of perpetuating you know, stereotypes or inaccuracies about that community. So hopefully I got it fairly right. Um, but it is something to, to, I think around the world, we need to look into the treatment of the indigenous people and, and kind of what happened when, when co colonizers came and, and thought, okay, we're going to take over this land and we're going to get this free work and, and labor. Um, you know, that's had a really terrible impact and that, that impact continues. Yes. Another element, which you deal with. I was reading and Billy has a common cause mm. with her missing husband, Jack, and it mm. has to do with the war. And you write, Hitler had wanted more than mm. Poland and Austria, more than all of Europe. He had wanted the world reflected in his terrifying image. He had come closer than many cared mm. to admit. I read that and I thought to myself, 
let's be honest, we still haven't rid the world. No, we haven't. We have not um, rid the world of Hitler's hate of fascism, of white supremacy and um, anti-Semitism. All of these things still are very present. Also, ableism, which I touch on in the book as well. I mean, that was another thing that the Nazis did. They uh, murdered a huge number of disabled people or people with, you know, physical differences, mental differences. Um, And also they had uh, their crusade against, their, their homophobic crusade against anyone who was not, you know, straight, cisgender status quo. Um, and all of those groups of people yeah. still are um, experiencing elements of suffering and elements of oppression today, all of those groups. So, yeah, yeah it's, um, it is unfortunately something that resonates today. And I kind of wish all the topics in the War Widow were kind of very much a thing of the past. We go, oh, well, that was 1946. We've got that sorted now, but that, you know, that simply isn't the case. I can't pretend that it is. So I, I guess I'm using this book in this series as a way to pull readers through uh, an exciting story, a story that makes them, I hope, feel empowered and excited and um, and thrilled, but also that touches on these things and makes us think about where we've come from and the problems that still exist today and why it's so important to finally stamp it out, to finally stamp out this kind of hate speech, um, misogyny and uh, racism that still lingers on and homophobia that just still lingers on. As, and it, emboldening um, fascists has been one of the toughest things I've watched in you know recent years, just seeing this emboldening of those communities of um, fascists and white supremacists. Yeah. I just go, oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe that's happening now. Yeah. Like, have we forgotten all the lessons from this time? Um, yeah, thankfully, exactly. thankfully, there's a lot of and, amazing yeah. people out there who've continued to fight the fight. But we, you know, we can't have our blinkers on. We have to actually see that this stuff is still there. It hasn't been stepped out completely. Yeah, just going a little bit lighter here. Um, I, like I say, it said before, I'm, I'm reading the novel and I feel like I'm, mm-hmm. it was written in the Wonderful. 1940s. And, and it's words like peeling mm-hmm. of silk under things. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and with regards to mm-hmm. her assistant, Sam, right hand, though scarred, steady as you want on a trigger oh, hand. Nice, I'm a big right? fan of and 1940s uh, hard-boiled and noir Right now I'm reading In a Lonely Place by Dorothy Hughes. Um, there's a lot of incredible women writers from that period. Of course, uh, we know our Raymond Chandler. I'm a big fan of Chandler. Um, so many are, of course. Um, but I am a big, a big fan of that type of fiction. And I guess what I wanted to do was to, to take that style and take that setting and subvert it so that the central characters were not male characters. We weren't, you know, seeing the world through male eyes throughout, which is really what you find in the uh, fiction of almost entirely. (laughs) You find that of the fiction of the time. There were several male protagonists um, in most cases. In this case, you've got this um, 
female perspective. And her perspective is unique and it's fresh and it's interesting, but it's no less authentic. In fact, it's it's authentic to the period, but just it's a perspective we haven't seen shown enough. You know, we haven't read enough of that perspective. And I think that makes it all the more kind of interesting um, and fresh and, and perhaps even important. Um, I'm not going to say The War Widow is an important book. It's um, an entertaining book. But I think that those perspectives really do have something to offer. And it means we're not kind of just reading the same book again and again, the same old, you know, tropes and ideas. We're actually seeing it differently. And um, that's what I really value as well as a reader. But I love that yes. setting and I love yes. the language um, of the time and getting all those historical details right is a real passion of mine. So speaking of your characters, yeah. you also have yes. the Baroness, Ella. It's just elegant. With She's elegant without <laughs> even having to say the word elegant. She reminded me of my mom. My mom wasn't a Baroness, but for example... My mom would say things to me such as a woman's hair is her crown. Okay. And then it just it stuck with me or you never <laughs> leave the house without your lipstick, you know, and, and, and just, she would say things, my mom about you take pride in yourself. And like, when you walked out that door, you made yourself presentable. Okay. And what I find through Ella you add humor. And I was wondering if that was your, your intention. Humor is a great survival mechanism. It's a great uh, survival instinct. And with everything these women have been through, I think humor feels really natural. So it came organically with Ella and her lady's maid, Alma. Ella, as you mentioned, was a baroness or is a baroness, but she's you know lost most of her fortune. She's now in Australia. She was a baroness when she was in Holland. And so her circumstances are different, but she's still wearing her chaparelli gowns, her beaded gowns from the twenties. You know, she still has her hair in flawless Marcel waves and she drinks her sherry each night and dresses for dinner, even though she's in this, you know, in this flat, it's an elegant flat admittedly, but much smaller, much different circumstances to what she you know, grew up with. Um, and I, I kind of like this, it's not a clash of generations, but this, this way in which Billy Walker and her mother, Ella Von Hooft, represent women of different um, classes and generations. And the way that they can come together, I think is really interesting. Um, and they respect each other. They, they, you know, like to kind of poke fun at each other and the banter between um, Ella and Billy, I just, adore. Uh, and all of that came really organically, as yeah. I said. So it wasn't kind of, a, I wasn't trying to look for a comic relief. It just was something that kind of came out of these characters when they're together. And I love that they respect each other enough that her mother, you know, even though Ella does not drive, she's never thought it was, you know, a thing she wanted to do. Women don't drive, you know, she understood that her daughter was different. So she bought her a car you know, she bought her her daughter a a small pistol because she's going to be working as a PI. She bought her a sewing oh, yeah. machine because although she doesn't herself yeah. sew, she knows that Billy wants to make all of these different outfits yeah. so she can fit into the different ends of town that she needs to slide into in her work. So that respect, you know, kind of here's your car so you can go anywhere. Here's your sewing machine so you can be anyone. 
here's your gun so you can take on anyone is a mother's love for her daughter. I love that. Um, But these are all skills that Ella herself doesn't possess. So she can still see the value in them and know that Billy is a different generation. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned about the things Mm -hmm. Ella's mom, Ella's, I'm sorry, Ella fought for Billy. And uh, I, I will, I've, I've said this before. It was the time which is so cherished by myself is when I was in my late twenties and I told my mom, I'm going to write novels. I used to write and she went out and bought me a, a whole bunch of Harlequin romances to oh, read. So I, I could it. learn how to write, you know, you know, I thought, okay, that's not what I kind of want to write, but oh, you know, I knew where beautiful. her heart was. That's yeah. Beautiful. It's that support. I think yeah. is really women supporting women is, is a theme in the book as well. And just showing how resilient these different characters are, whether it's Ella and her, you know, managing a life that's so changed um, for her, her circumstances have changed, her financial circumstances have changed and everything she knew is, is changed, you know, or whether it's Billy adapting to her changing circumstances and the, the world around her changed so much from the war and now it's post-war and things have changed yet again, you know, it's just looking at the resilience of ordinary people. That's really the focus of the book. And it's also why I've dedicated it to my Oma and Opa. I don't know if you know the the story behind them and why I've dedicated the book to them, but they are a great example of ordinary people doing extraordinary things during this time. Oh, you don't know. Okay. I'll I'll tell the story briefly then if that's okay. Of yeah. World War II um, from my Oma and Opa. So that was my mom's uh, mom and dad. And um, they were in Holland. They'd been born in uh, Neumannsdorp and married in Neumannsdorp, and that's south of Rotterdam. And uh, they, uh, of course, the Nazis occupied that area when they, when they came and occupied Holland. And a lot of their neighbors were taken away and sent to concentration camps. They they had some Jewish friends and neighbors. They were themselves not Jewish. So my opa was taken to a work camp and he was forced into slave labor. Uh, Speaking again of of slave labor and how uh, different political movements and groups have used slave labor to, you know, to gain money for themselves. He was taken and sent off to work in this work camp in Berlin in a munitions factory um, taken by Forrest. And and my Oma had these young kids at the time, and she bravely would cycle across Holland smuggling flour and sugar in the hollows of her bicycle in order to deliver those ingredients to him because he was a baker by trade, and he would bake uh, bread in the munitions ovens to bribe the foreman. So think of all the checkpoints she had to pass through with this smuggled flour and sugar. I mean, something that's so simple today, but was um, very uh, heavily rationed and and she wasn't supposed to be traveling with at the time. And so she'd give him these ingredients, smuggle it in. He'd bake the bread. He bribed the foreman. The foreman finally gave him a day pass because of all this wonderful, delicious bread he was baking in amongst the bombs. And um, and he got a day pass, and that's how he escaped yeah. the Nazis. And 
He returned by foot to Holland. Oh, wow. He took him several days of walking at night. He commandeered a horse at one point to ride across a checkpoint where there were Nazis stationed. And he survived that experience and spent the rest of the war basically in, in hiding because uh, he was afraid they would come back and take him again. Uh, and right after the war, they got in a boat, came to Canada and started their their life here. Um, and that's why I was born in Canada. Oh. So an extraordinary sequence of okay. events that that um, the bravery of ordinary citizens, I think is just something we haven't focused on enough in our literature and storytelling from this period. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And when you, as you're talking, yeah. you're, you're mentioning yeah. Oma and Opa. That's I'm right. thinking, Oma, Opa. That's Dutch. That's Dutch. Right. <laughs> With a name like Mandelbrook, I'm like, that's Dutch. Have you heard of Neumannsdorp? It's a small village. So it's not as well known, but it's south of Rotterdam, and that's where they were from. Okay, I want to go to Holland. I have ne never been, and the goal was <laughs> this year. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that, 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 that didn't happen. So, but I'm going back to Billy. I really do enjoy her. Uh, <laughs> she's my type of heroine. Uh, oh, yeah. I like the sports cars. Um, like I've illustrated sports cars, illustrated motorcycles, instructed fit like heavy do like boot camp classes spin classes yet i also like yes, my blue yes. frog shoes and nice clothes right my favorite mm -hmm. scene is this car chase she's in this oh i looked it up this two beautiful car willie's roadster <laughs> she's driving it chasing the bad guys and as i'm reading i'm thinking <laughs> tara don't wreck the roadster don't wreck the roadster <laughs> How did you decide, or did Billy reveal to you, well, we know Ella buys her a car, but how did you come to the conclusion well, the that Willie's it would be Roadster, Roadster is just a gorgeous automobile, and in fact, the design and the engine on these cars is so was so famously good for its era that they're still sometimes used um, in racing now. It, like, it's kind of rare, but there's such a incredible car they hold up so well um that there's a few of them still around um and they were considered to be like quite fast quite effective little cars on the road and i thought how perfect for her to have this car that's not only gorgeous with these elegant lines and just something i could see her in and also something i can see her mom as a a baroness to kind of to see as appropriate for her daughter, you know, like this kind of fancy car that she bought when there was still some money in the family, you know, um, but also one that happened to be really right. effective. Like it's a great fast car that held the road really well. And I think it's that combination of function and style that I wanted to um, have Billy driving Um and there's a wonderful um, ornament on the bonnet as well. There's a victory um, on the on the on the bonnet, and she is like, she's got her um, hair back and her head tilted upwards, and these wings going back. And um, it's just this little ornament, but it's kind of this incredible female crest on the front of this fast-moving, gorgeous car. I just thought that is Billy. Um, I can't find the section right now in my own copy of The War Widow, but there is 
also, I'm sure you would have noticed this wonderful paragraph that's basically like a love letter to driving um, about, about why women need to be driving cars and enjoying the road and all the reasons why it's, you know, it's preferable to everything else you can be doing. Uh, so she's a, she's a big fan of the road, our Billy Walker, and I love her in the driver's seat and I love that car chase. Yes. If you yes. look at the roadster, though, you'll see what a beautiful it is. Um, being a two-seater, it's very sporty for its time, but it still has those elegant lines that you would expect, those sort of deco lines that you would expect um, that someone like the Baroness Ella von Hooft would appreciate. Now, she'd want a car that would have a chauffeur in the front, of course, so a two-seater yes. would never suit the Baroness, but she can see this yeah. for her daughter. And, um, yeah, it's just a perfect car and one that her – um, assistant Sam is completely floored by when he first gets to go for a ride with her in it. With Ella, the dialogue, I, I have, if you don't mind, I would love to read this bit of dialogue. Well, it's not actually dialogue, but it's, it, if I could read this, which this cracked me up. And it was, it reads, the Baroness <laughs> knew about Marie <laughs> Stopes and her <laughs> and her family planning devices and firmly believed in women <laughs> controlling the fate of their wombs. Despite what gray-haired men of religion had to say on the matter. I read that and I thought, oh my God, you know. So I, I was curious, how did you come up with that sentence? Was it well, based it's just on any conversations? That, that time, um, you know, there were pamphlets that were sometimes given out with Marie Stopes information on them, on how women could uh, control their fertility and have this, you know, birth control. Um, and, you know, women were arrested for handing those sorts of pamphlets out. Like, like it's extraordinary. And of course um, in a lot of the church going families, this was just something you did not discuss at all. It wasn't until the 1950s um, that you saw the pill introduced. So during this period, there was nothing like that. And Marie Stokes was, was the answer. Um, and, you know, things like diaphragms, all of that was like, it was, it was really, controversial it was considered like women taking matters into their own hands and like just think of how important it would be for someone like Ella von Hooft or for Billy Walker that she's able to control you know how many children she has in her life I mean that's important for all of us and it was important for them in the 40s as well so I thought it was worth mentioning that um, Ella von Hooft was that kind of progressive woman. She came from a, you know, she's a baroness. She comes from this well-to-do family. But, you know, upper-class families had this stuff sorted from the beginning. It was often, not sorted from the beginning, but they would go about things as they pleased, I guess is what I mean to say. And it was often middle-class women and lower-class women who did not okay. have access to this stuff. And they would be, you know... <laughs> They, they would be arrested for handing out pamphlets, trying to give this information out to women who more than anyone else couldn't afford to, you know, have a child out of wedlock or to have, say, their sixth child that they couldn't afford to feed. It was often those women who really bore the brunt of these um, very backwards uh, practices. Uh, there's very patriarchal ideas about um, women's bodies 
so I thought it was yeah pretty pretty important to kind of bring us back to that moment and think oh that's right in 1946 like the fact that Ella von Hooft had one child is really interesting she chose that she wished to have one child yeah. and we find out in the book as well that she actually had that child out of wedlock but she managed to ride out that controversy essentially because she was upper class um, and it's something that a, a lower class woman could hardly have afforded you know okay. uh, but it's something she could do and that she felt proud of and not ashamed of and she'd do what she pleased darn it you know she wanted this baby and she had her baby and she had her the love of her life and and that's what her choices were um but it was important to kind of yeah bring us back to that moment and realize that that's not nothing at the time that was a big deal making those choices was something that most women were not yeah. uh, afforded yeah. we had talked about this and you know and we're talking mm. about this with the women issues back then Mm. The women issues we still have now. One of them, I feel, is this, and I'm I'm basing this off a conversation I've had with my 30-year-old daughter. And I still feel there's this unsaid and said expectation that as a woman gets older, and um, <laughs> if people can't hear my sarcasm in my voice especially if you are climbing yes. towards that age of 30, that, there, that there's this yes. pressure of, oh, are you going to have kids? And, and it blows my mind. And with uh, conversations with my daughter, who's not, she's past 30, she's working to be a nurse. She's taking nursing we've talked and she said, you know, her friends, they're posting all these, these beautiful photos, photos of gender reveal parties or baby showers. And she felt this pressure. And um, I said, Ashley, nobody's posting <laughs> the 2am dripping diaper photo. Like, let's keep it real here. Okay. And it's not that I'm, I'm against, like, I don't want people to take me wrong. It, I'm, I'm fully in support of a woman deciding if she wants to have children, go for it, go for it, you know? Um, but I still feel there's this pressure for those who maybe don't want to have children. And I have one of my best friends, she's my age. She said she always felt this pressure because she never had children. So we're making strides. We have Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland. We have Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Our conversations feel that we... Oh, we, we still, still do have, have one, one foot, foot back, back in the 1940s. 1940s. In fact, worse than that, I think we have a foot back in the 1950s. And the reason I say that is because the 50s... Um, were really uh, culturally speaking and politically speaking a time where they tried to push back to before the 40s, before the war, and really get women back into the kitchen. You know, they pushed so hard for that. And in the War Widow in 1946, we, see, we only see the beginning of that. It actually became a lot more fierce. So right after the war, it was like, okay, thanks, ladies, and go home now. And then when they saw that a lot of the women weren't doing that, were still making their own decisions and had, you know, their own interests, then the, then the the sort of the political and social battle uh, between um, uh, with with gender really started to take hold. And in the 50s, you know, 
just as a classic example, Wonder Woman was created in 1942, I believe it was. Someone will probably correct me if I'm out by a year, but I believe it was around 1941 or 42 uh, by William Martin Wollstone. And she was this kind of the most powerful being in the universe. And she was this incredible character and quite feminist by today's standards, like really, uh, you know, very powerful. In the 1950s, all of the uh, Wonder Woman comics, William Martin Molson had passed away by them. So they're being written by others. Suddenly had her just wanting to marry Steve Trevor and give up, give up her powers. That's That was culturally what the propaganda was. So there was a huge push to kind of go back. Um, so, yeah, I would even go so far as to say we've got a foot back in the 1950s, this period that comes directly after the War Widow. We can feel the tension of that building, but it did get even worse during that period. And, of course, there was also um, the yeah. pushback against that. There's a lot of, you know, subversive culture in the 1950s, which I really enjoy, um, that, that existed at the time. But the norm was very traditional and very regressive. And we do have that foot back in that period, this kind of, you know, uh, wouldn't everything just be better if women knew their place again kind of idea. And again, the pressure to, you know, get married and have kids. If you find the right person and it's it's right for you and you want to have children, that's wonderful. But the idea that you're not a complete person without that is something we continually foist on women. Um, and I don't think we really put that same pressure on on men. We don't tell them that they're not complete humans without, you know, no. having, having, you know, created another human. <laughs> You're not, you haven't, you haven't um, completed your role on earth, you know, unless you've, yeah. you've done that. So yeah, that we have more choices now. We have more potential influences. We have um, more women leaders, but they're still by far outnumbered. And uh, we are not as far along progressively as, as I would like to be, uh, like us to be, and maybe not as far as we sometimes think. Yeah. So that leads me to why were there not a lot of female Australian authors during the... Well, it's interesting. The, there, um, uh, I don't know exactly how many there were in the 1990s, but I do know that when I wrote my character of Mac Vanderwall, uh, she first came out in 1999, and she was a central female character a bit. Um, she was compared at times to, like, Jason Bourne, a female Jason Bourne and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but I appreciated it at the time. It was considered really kind of radical, um, that's not the case now. A lot of time has passed. It's been um, 21 years since the first book yeah. in that series came out, which was my debut. But I remember just how kind of shocking it was that this yeah. young woman was writing about a young woman who was like, had a great roundhouse kick and could ride motorbikes and, you know, take on serial killers and stuff like this. This was really not done you know mm. um we did have wonderful people like sarah Proteski yeah. writing vi warshowski you know over in the u.s but we didn't have as much of that over in australia at the time um we do have a lot of really wonderful female authors over in oz now mm. um who i really enjoy um you know people like carrie greenwood and she wrote the Franny fisher series so if, if you know the tv series miss fisher's murder mysteries that's um carrie greenwood's work um, and there's just, yeah, yeah a, an amazing number of authors over there. But 
again, the ones you hear about, the ones that maybe are going to be adapted to film or television, you know, often you'll find that it's not going to be a female writer or female protagonist. And I think that's one of the the things we need to continue to, uh, um, you know, adjust and seek more um, more visibility and more uh, presence with is is actually celebrating the work of the women who are out there doing it. You know, it's one thing to get a book out, it's quite difficult, but it's another yeah. thing to get it read or to have it become a bestseller or have it, you know, retold as an adaptation. Those are all other steps that we don't see happen as much for the talented female writers out there. Is it true your debut novel, Fetish, was published? A reporter had the audacity. Oh yeah! To oh, that happened a if lot. You had really yep. written that. That novel. happened a lot. In fact, um, it seems pretty uh, mad now, and it is pretty crazy. But um, when the book came out in 1999, there were lots of kind of whispers about how this young woman could have written this best-selling novel, Fetish. Anyone who knew me or read the book wouldn't question it, but it was more yeah. the very concept that was apparently um, <clears throat> shocking or controversial. Um, so much so that when Split came out, which was my second novel with this central character of Mac Vanderwall, um, I was dared to take a polygraph test, which is a lie detector test to prove that I write my own work. And I sat that test in 2002. It seems like another lifetime ago, but 18 years ago, I actually sat in a room with a polygraph examiner who normally examines suspected rapists and serial killers. And, um, and he put me to the test and guilty as charged. I'm an author. <laughs> I've got a 33 page report telling me the obvious Jeez. that I write my own books and that I'm an author. It's, uh, it seems really um, surreal now, but at that time it was before the days of social media. I now you know, anyone can look me up and see what I do now because it's online and you can just find me. But if you're going to base your judgment on like an old modeling yeah. photograph or on the fact that at the time I was in my 20s, I was a woman in her 20s and you're not going to believe I can write because of that. Well, I'm sorry, but you're the fool, not me. <laughs> exactly. When, when, like, Pip sent me uh, lots of materials, and when I read that, I thought, "Are you kidding me?" No, it's pretty, <laughs> just, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, it so, seems like a lifetime ago now. It's been twenty-one years since my first book came out, and I've got thirteen yeah. best-selling books out now. But that was that was a strange time, very strange indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I saw mm -hmm. a review with. Uh, previous series you had done um, the reviewer had said how it the, it was the final book in the series and it was a, a very good way to end the series mm. and I want to talk a bit about endings I had listened to Mark Morin's podcast and he had Glenn Close on there and they were talking about her role mm. as Alex Forrest in Fatal Attractions and she said that. Um, what didn't come out in the movie was that her character, Alex was actually sexually abused as a child. And originally the movie was to end with her character, Alex committing suicide um, with the score of Madam Butterfly playing in the background. But when they sent the movie out to the test audience, the test audience didn't yes, like that yeah. ending. They wanted to see justice. Mm. 
Has there ever been a time when you've written, written an ending because you believed this is what your character would do, but then had to change or tweak it? Often waited for that letter or email, you know, or the phone call saying, um, okay, this is your editor here. You've finally gone too far. <laughs> I've, I've often waited for that. Um, and it's never happened. I've never had a publisher or an editor. I only work with them right at the end. Uh, so some people you interview, or for, perhaps even for yourself, you might work with an editor as you go. But the way I've tended to work is I will you know, hunker down with a book mm -hmm. for a year and a half or two years, and then I deliver something. And then we work intensely for a few months, kind of like sorting out any issues that might be there and checking things. Um, so I don't have that kind of regular feedback as I go. So when I'd send in a book, I'd submit it and I'd think, oh boy, when they get to chapter 13, you know, I'm going to get a phone call. <laughs> I'm going to go, you can't do that, you know, and it never happened. And that <laughs> taught me that actually I needed to push my own boundaries a little bit further. I certainly did that with the Mac Vanderwall contemporary crime series. Yeah. The one, as you mentioned, that I, I ended after six books. It just felt like the right time for that character arc and her um, her journey. Um, so I, I went as hard as I could to just really push that to the limits of what um, what seemed right for her in her circumstances, but really a very intense ending. And it's funny, I, I never had to go back and change it. It was none of that issue, but I have had a lot of readers contact me with very uh, polarized views on the um, ending of one of the other characters. So not Mac herself, but one of her love interests, let me say. He has a particular end that is controversial for those who are into the Mac Vanderwall canon. You know, like if you're interested in this particular set of characters that I've written over that period of time in the six novels, they'll, they'll be the ending of one of them that <laughs> very much polarizes the readers. It just felt like it's what needed to happen to take the books to the next level, but it's also one of those things that broke people's hearts, including, including my own as the author. Sometimes you have to love a character and you have to kill your darlings, as they say, um, oh. to, really, to really make a book work. So that was an ending of one of the books in that series, which had, you know, was hard to do. And I've never regretted making that choice. It always felt like it needed to happen, but I've had a lot of readers over the years go, did you have to, did you have to do it? You know, um, but no, I've never had a publisher who has, you know, called me up and say, no, we have to change this. Um, I did have a publisher um, in the early days when Fetish, the first novel, came out in 1999. Um, prior to publication, say, look, the ending, I'm not sure. Do you think you want to consider another ending? And I now understand what she was going for. But there was the um, there was a larger character arc that I wanted to follow. Okay. So I won't give away too much detail, but I will say that I look back and go, yeah, I respect that person's view and what they were questioning. But I had a larger story arc, and I think it's worked. Um, but I, I never actually changed that ending or or any ending so okay. far. One of my favorite questions, and uh, each podcast I write new questions. Each author is different; their books are different. Um, but the one question I will always ask a fiction author, and I, and I hope over time 
that the guests that come on my podcast anticipate this question. And that is, if Billy Walker stepped off the pages of your Mm -hmm. novel because she wanted to have a few words with you, what would she say, Tara? Oh, oh, that is a really tricky one. (laughs) If she wanted to have a few words with me, first of all, we'd have to go somewhere for a champagne (laughs) cocktail. That's her thing. She would drive us there in her Willie's Roadster. She would drive fast. She would not let me get into the driver's seat, even though I asked her. And she would probably say to me, now, a few decades have passed since my action in this book. Why haven't you guys sorted out fascism? I think that's what she'd be saying. What is going on? Yeah. How could this be? I think she'd be outraged and appalled yeah. that, you know, 75 years had uh, passed since the end of the war. Yeah. And we still hadn't stamped out fascism. And that there were people walking around with um, Nazi swastika flags and calling themselves neo-Nazis today. I think she would be perturbed and upset about that. Wonder what the heck we're doing. That's a great answer. It's for me, it's really cool. When I look back and I think of all the different answers I've heard, that's really cool. Yeah. She, she, she'd be like, what's going on? (laughs) So the quote symbolically invisible that resonated with me because I remember in my early forties, I, I, I say I'm, I refer to myself as being 50-ish now, okay? So, so in my early to mid-40s, I had that feeling. And it had nothing to do with um, wanting the attention from the opposite sex. It had nothing to do with that. It was, okay, I'm, I'm not an up-and-comer. I'm not a female in my 20s or 30s with goals or schooling in sight. Um, I'm, I'm not a leader of a company. Um, I was at that time, I saw myself as mid forties government employee working as a secretary. And I literally, I thought, I remember exactly where I was. I was standing on the corner of Douglas and Fort street. And I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm invisible in terms of this society it's a real state of being for certain groups of people and women over 40 are one of those groups. Uh, older people in general, yes, but for men it starts much, 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 much later as we've seen um, you know, in leadership around the world. It's not uncommon for a man to be in his mid-70s and you know, leading a country. Um, and women, uh, their supposed cultural relevance um, slips very quickly after 40. And I'm a woman over 40. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking of people like myself as well. It's not a foreign concept to me. Uh, that That's really one of the reasons why it's so incredibly important to hear more women's stories and to celebrate more women's achievements because they're actually out there doing this stuff. Like, it's not like, it's not like we have to go and encourage women to do stuff. They're doing it. They've been doing it for a long time. What we find, though, is that they're invisible in the um, in the cultural conversation. We're not seeing them represented as much in our, um, you know, the, the the corridors of power in politics, in media, in fiction, in storytelling, in our town squares and statues. You know, the the street names, the the you know, the artists, all those ways in which 
we see influence uh, exerted. We, we, all the ways in which the world is shaped uh, that we live in, those are ways in which women are, are often excluded or at least underrepresented on some level. There are a few exceptions to that increasingly, uh, which I'm very happy to see, but right. there's still the exceptions. Um, so that symbolic annihilation is real, and um, I feel very passionately about changing those stats. Um, my books, um, The Fictional Woman and Speaking Out, are both, both books that ultimately wrestle with that precise issue of uh, underrepresentation of, of women and girls in particular, um, and, and I've been taking that, you know, directly on in my nonfiction because I think it matters. It matters for democracy. It matters for all of us. And I think when all of the people in our society, regardless of gender or sexual orientation or whether they're considered to be able-bodied or disabled or whether they're from a different culture, when everybody is in some way given a chance and included, that inclusive society becomes a better, smarter, more innovative society because all the ideas are in the mix. You're not cutting half of the minds out, you know, half of the ideas out and half of that knowledge base out because of this sort of bigotry or preconceived biases. You know, and, and so we all benefit, actually, if we uh, get better at listening to all groups of people. And, yeah, women over 40 are one of those groups. We're seeing a little bit of headway, but it's we're, we're a ways off still, I'm afraid. Well, at the moment, I'm writing uh, so the follow-up to The what's War Widow. So I'm writing another book with um, with this wonderful character of Billy Walker. It's set in 1947, so you're going to see uh, further um, journey of, of those characters from the first book. Um, I've also just completed a criminal investigation, a cold case investigation in Australia, which I can't uh, give any more detail on yet, but which will be launching next month. Um, and that has taken up a lot of my year as well when I'm not, you know, not been thrown around by <laughs> the pandemic and the changes in our lives that that brought. Um, I'm also doing a lot of advocacy in the areas of chronic pain and disability as a person um, with chronic pain and disability myself um, and continuing my work with UNICEF. Um, and that's keeping me pretty busy, I've got to say. Um, and, and loving vintage and salvaging vintage and yeah. sewing and all ah. those other things I enjoy. So, yeah, pretty busy, pretty fabulous life at the moment that I'm very grateful for. That's great. That is great. So where can our the listeners social. find you on That's the socials? Right. You can <laughs> say my name, you know, my web address. I'm on Twitter at um, Tara underscore Moss, because someone else was already Tara Moss. So there's an underscore in there. And you can find me at Tara Moss Author on Instagram. If you're interested in my advocacy on disabilities, chronic pain, and mobility aids, I use various fabulous mobility aids, including some very cool walking sticks. Um, you can find me at Tara and Wolfie on Instagram, which is my dedicated account that looks okay. at those um, gorgeous devices and um, that element of my life. And yeah, I hope you'll look me up and find me online. I'm on Facebook as well, Tara Moss author. So hopefully you'll, uh, you'll drop me a line and hopefully you'll enjoy The War Widow. Awesome. Well, I am. I some of those scenes still um, give me Good. kind of like a, a pounding heart and sometimes even a little bit of tears in my eyes. Um, so I, I hope that you really, uh, I hope you find it as moving. Thanks for uh, taking the time and, thank and thanks for, for supporting the work and supporting books. And Good. 
um, yeah, it was a real thrill. Thank Tara, you. And to you, you, too. you and your family stay healthy. Take care. Bye. <laughs>